0: Welcome to the Integration Station, your go-to paediatric occupational therapy podcast run by the OTFC group. The Integration Station strives to support and empower parents, caregivers and therapists involved with the neurodivergent community and connect listeners from around the globe to explore and celebrate the role of air sensory integration and occupational therapy. Dino and I will be joining guests to discuss a bit about their professional and personal life, share stories and engage in conversations to provide an insight into the people we are fortunate to meet every day. In this episode, we bring part two of our conversation with Dr. Suzanne Smith-Rolley. This conversation brought up topics about the easy, healthy lifestyle, what happens with teenagers seeking OT, the bare bones that got the easy assessment up and running, Current trends in sensory motor development, and also some more light-hearted questions.
1: Well, it's going—it's obviously going to be more accessible to um, to a, a lot more therapists, um, and and financially a, a lot more accessible as well, because the 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 is 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 very expensive. So this will hopefully again open up even more opportunities for you know more you know, more. I guess more thorough and rigid um, assessment in sensory integration and and that hopefully will also propel and fuel further s- you know research and studies and and bring the data forward even more um, and that evidence further which will be fantastic we oh, we welcome that don't we we're like Absol- always absolutely I think the more that we can
0: use particularly in Australia I know we touched on it last time is um, how we can increase the the, the the you know the the viability of of an SI based assessment being used as as a gold standard I mean we see it as a gold standard but but there are other assessments that are used here more more frequently and um you know we've used them too and we just see that the deficits between those and and the ones that are ASI based um, and I think the easy is just an, an excellent thorough comprehensive assessment that just covers it all and I don't know why everyone wouldn't just be doing it.
2: Yeah, well, that's our hope. Um, yeah, and to make it accessible and, and in lots of languages. And um, we, you know, Kelly Aldred, who works with me during our assessments, we started to give a few of the easy um, tests in in addition to the SIP, like the ocular motor and praxis test and the, the bilateral integration tests and the postural control tests, which are not necessarily duplicated in the SIP, Um also the sensory reactivity test and it's, and it's just really rewarding because the scores are coming back, um, reflecting uh, what we kind of would imagine Mm. would happen, you know, in terms of good postural control, bad postural control, you know, and um, yeah, so it's fun to see the scores come back and be uh, relevant, you know, so, so the SIP was always so amazing in um, the sensitivity to detect these issues that that often go unnoticed, and um, you know, I trusted the SIFT. You know, yeah, we're, uh, yeah. We're on hopeful that, that we can trust those easy scores too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, on on that then, normative data differences. So. Did, did you note from, and I don't know if you know some of the normative data from, from the SIPT, but did you note any differences between that from the SIPT compared to the EASY? I guess what I do hear anecdotally and also in, in research is that children are getting more intelligent or more capable. Has that shifted the the normative data information in, in, in the EASY?
2: That's interesting that they're more capable, more intelligent, Um you know my experience is that typical children are having more legs in their sensory motor development I think some not necessarily because of neurological differences but because of environmental exposure and then the technology that they're kind of addicted to screen time and so they're not getting those opportunities to go out and do those really normal sensory motor Um, play activities that might be more common in in australia maybe than other countries but um so so what we were feeling is that that the norms were a little lower than they should be The kids should be doing a little bit better and of course then your yardstick you know your expectations are lowered if the normative data is lower but the, the good news on the easy is we have normative data from all over the world. Now we don't have it 100% analyzed, but we have looked at differences in countries, um, and so far, not not enough difference to uh, to be worried. So we were able to collapse those um, those data. But I think in the future that would be a really important question to see. You know, is there is are there difference normative differences depending on on lifestyle um and are the kids getting better or worse i think that's a that's a question we don't have the answer to right now
1: well i can tell you that the number of kids we occasionally assess from the country have less issues from a sensory motor perspective than those that live in the city here and i think a lot of that has to do with their lifestyle they're they're out and doing things riding motorbikes from five years of age working on you know family properties and a lot of the children in and it's similar all over the world where they have um, technology or access to technology is that they are it's it's environmental they're just lazy and so their their tone doesn't develop and once the tone and the posture doesn't develop then all these other issues come and then by six and seven we're looking at you know first two years of schooling life and they're struggling and and we're going way back saying, Well, we can't work on handwriting until we actually work on all these other little bits and pieces first. And sometimes that's a bit tricky to um to explain to parents. I guess my question to you is when that occurs, how how do you um how do you explain that to a to a parent? Well, I, you
2: know, I do go with lifestyle as, a, as an occupational therapist, you know, I kind of go back to occupational engagement, try not to use too much jargon but yeah. families, but but looking at lifestyle and healthy lifestyles. And, and of course, a healthy lifestyle of the child starts with the healthy lifestyle of the of the adults. So if you've got very sedentary adults or adults that are spending, maybe for their work, even lots and lots of time on the computer and not getting up and then their then their recreation is TV. They're, they're not you know they're not going to have those opportunities but but that that leaks into all aspects of health you know even diet and exercise and obesity and you know general strength and stamina but let me tell you one thing you know uh, in the isic congress we had um enat gall from israel who presented data on praxis measures and she had a very Surprising and in, interesting finding, which she found that the the children in the more um, urban areas did better in the praxis measures than those in, in more rural. And sh- she had a different uh, differentiation um, in her groups, which you'd have to look at her her results. But she felt that it had to do with the amount of enrichment that children were receiving in the um, in their urban areas versus. The other group, which um, so th- so that's also interesting. You know what what is it about? You know the cultural sensitivity um, and, and lifestyle. I think we don't we don't know that yet.
1: Did she did she allude Suzanne to what enrichment they were receiving in those in those urban areas that was maybe different to what?
2: Yeah, and it was based on on I I think uh, re- religion. I mean I'm I'm not so sure. Mm. Um, but you know m- whether they were more fundamentalist um, or or not, but, um, yeah, so um I- i'm I'm not really sure, but it was an interesting finding. She will publish on it. so, mm-hmm. um so I think that's also interesting. what what kind of activities, those kind of after school activities, sports activities, music activities, those sorts of things, sense enrichment, things that that children um, have access to where in some communities, maybe those aren't available.
1: And even in, in countries where it's scheduled as part of, you know, whether, whether or not we like to look at those, some of those countries that are, are, are more um, uh, aligned to, you know, an era back in the seventies and eighties where, you know, they would, they would have structured activity in the morning and that would be a, a structured physical activity after school when they were very regimented and very almost military like, but all of the children participated in, and it was very strict and very thorough. And, you know, some of those, some of those countries produced amazing athletes in those uh, eighties as well. And you think oh, they're, they're obviously, they are generically providing something. And it's all, almost like making every kid go out and ride a bike or climb a tree will naturally improve those that are struggling a little bit or have some deficits will naturally bring them up. Not those with severe deficits, but certainly those that were in that mild mild range. Um and then we're seeing a lot of them. We we still see a lot of them in therapy because they're just not able to access or the parents don't know how to access those things as easily. I think Suzanne, I used to say trampoline was the best and most important um um, play equipment or apparatus that children should have at home. But my theory, my thinking now is it's actually a parent. A parent is the best play apparatus a child should have. Because if without that parent and teaching and doing things exactly like you're saying, accessibility and, and modelling, then long-term those things aren't sustained and, it, and you don't get an opportunity to go back over that time, do you? You don't really get the, the chance to go back and do these things when you know, they're 15 and 16 or 17.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's values too. Like, okay, what are you, what do you have to get done? And, and I know for my kid, I, I raised three children, they're adults now, but you know, it's like they were strong and healthy and I had to get them out of the house. Okay. We've got, we've got to go <laughs> do something physical because otherwise they were bouncing off the walls and smashing each other at, ho- at home just for fun. So, um, but that was also within my value structure you know like okay well let's go out and let's do, okay let's go ride your bike let's go to the beach let's go do let's go to the park let's let's go run around and you know work off some of that energy uh, but it was a it was also a value and that was more important to me than three hours of homework or handwriting you know it's like okay well i don't i really don't care if your handwriting is that great i know i'm an ot that's really true. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, physicians notoriously have poor handwriting. I don't, I don't care about that, but you need to be strong. You need to have a strong net because that's going to protect you if you, if you fall down <laughs> so you don't get a head trauma that I care about a lot more. So, um, so yeah, some of the, some of the, that value that you take with, you know, how do you apportion the, the allotted time in your day and making sure that there's some you know something that you do that keeps you you know alive physically
0: how do you have that conversation then with with a, a family or a parent whose i guess values don't necessarily align in that way mm-hmm. maybe that you are really advocating for the need for these you know these sensory motor foundations to be uh, improved and you can see deficits and you can see the SIP results are showing that there are challenges here but they're saying but I really want to focus on the academics and when I grew up I did this and and this is how I learned and this is how I got to where I got. How do you have that conversation with families then?
2: Well, I mean I do talk about values and and also general health. I mean by if if a parent has actually come to me for an assessment, my, my assumption is they're they're looking for for some some answers and so you know I will try to reflect on what's going on now well okay this is what's going on now and it's not really working because you're here for this this and this okay so what if and then try to infuse things that are not actually going to take I mean it, it is parent directed but maybe they get a teenage babysitter to come and mind the children for an hour and a half while you make dinner, who's willing to go out and do the outdoor play and supervise, but they're more energetic. And, you know, so try to think of ways or, you know, putting some of the these kinds of things like a trampoline, which I think is honestly a bit controversial um, just because of the risk. Um, so if, you know, but if it's done well, I mean, I've, I still have trampoline in my backyard um, with a net around it, I mean, it, nobody got seriously hurt you know nobody fell off no head trauma no no trips to the hospital based on the trampoline that's been here for 20 years so um but but yeah and so putting some of those pieces of equipment even like getting rid of the furniture in the bedroom and putting the the you know the mattress on the floor and letting the kids jump on the mattress you know on the floor and get rid of the bed frame so that's less concerning and they could still play and you could bring cushions. And so trying to create um, ideas and opportunities that that is um, going to make everybody's lives easier but not like a prescribed like, okay, now you have to add this to your to-do list. Okay, now you have to, have to but also like really encouraging them to, to get out and go to the park, go to some public place where the children would be able to move more, more routinely, and I don't know if it happens uh, where you are, but where we are, it seems like even these kids that have known autism get services maybe for a couple of years, you know, five to eight years, and then they start fading the service. And by twelve, they're on consult only, like fifteen minutes a month consult for OT or something. And they, and and basically, and then you know, by 15, 16, they, they're, they, they. Either they get behavior intervention or nothing, or they're in a more restricted kind of care in terms of their educational environment, but they've kind of been written off. And I I have a case like that right now where he, he had OT when he was five to eight. Now he's 16, but he hasn't had OT all the way along and he's really, really in need of it with a lot of sensory seeking behaviors, self-injurious behaviors that look to be sensory, extreme sensory related and extreme sensory reactivity to sound where he gets really agitated. But it's like, why, why did somebody determine that this important service wasn't worth assessing for and then providing service because of his age? And to me, that's, you know, that's a, you know, it's an ethical dilemma as well, but these, but we have, but time and time again, our older kids are are just like, no, we gave that service when he was little, and now he doesn't get it.
1: Well, we're battling with it with a, a funding model that is probably about eight years into um, into existence, where they at one point determined that the funding for young people would start to change at about seven years of age, and that significantly reduced and. There wasn't any research or any um consultation about why that happened it just happened, and so we we still have a lot of families who are, who are now you know in have young you know young adults and and teenagers who are able to access funding, but it's at a reduced amount and then having to fight and continue to fight and then seek legal support to increase the funding as well and I think because there's a lot of there are lots and lots of people that require um support now you know go back 20 years ago Suzanne and there was no funding at all for any child with a disability outside of the traditional um, if they had CP or a physical disability um, they certainly were able to access a service um, and it was funded but you know lots of um, uh, other this funding model opened up that opportunity for lots of um, of other people um, but then they're, they're always reducing and changing and it's being modified and and it, there's always this constant battle. And I think um, the opinion is that there isn't a great deal of change that can occur after the age of seven is what, what we're hearing, which we disagree with wholeheartedly. So it's always a constant battle for us. Do you have the same sort of
0: funding models in the U.S.? And obviously your health system is a little bit different, but how, how does that work in, in the U.S.?
2: Well, the funding funding models are are really challenging here in the U.S. Um, because prior to age three, um, children who have uh, disabilities, identifiable disabilities, like you said, you know, not just cerebral palsy, but you know, significant developmental delays, uh, genetic disorders, um, they might go into uh, you know, the state system that will provide funding for early intervention. So, so that, and that's really variable state to state in the United States. In California, we're, we're pretty good about that. And then at age three, it gets shifted to the school system. So then the school system, but all of those services have to be educationally relevant. So then you, so then you start this two-tiered system, which you could go to your private insurance Funding agency, but then it has to be medically necessary, and much of that gets into just ADL training. You know, are you able to eat and hold a spoon and put your pants on and go to the toilet? And then educational, it, uh, reductionistically, sadly, it's a lot about handwriting. So I don't know why handwriting, get your pants on. Those seem to be really important to people, but there's such a whole range of. Uh, in terms of the scope of service it gets to be neglected and then there's this debate is that medical or educational and I think Mm -hmm. that's a debate and then you have private funding which you know then yes people with resources are able to access that but it leaves a huge huge swath of people in need that can't access any services at all so um and, and there's no guarantee, you know. So there's no pot of money that, ha- unless they go to mediation and they get a, you know, get a service package, you know, as as part of the settlement, um, there's no guaranteed funding for any of these services unless you have that IEP. So so really, right now the bur- the primary burden is is on the um, the school districts, um, or if families have insurance, then but
1: that's minimal it wouldn't cover a lot would like we our private health insurance schemes there's there's not many health insurance companies that cover a great deal of the, the therapy costs anyway like we're looking at about sometimes only 20 percent of the fee that's covered by private insurance and that that's prior to obviously um this initiative i don't know how we can sustain the initiative that we have that provides the amount of funding that we do for the, the families that access or well, the range of clients that access our services but you know it, it's existed now for eight eight or nine years so you know they say it's i, I predicted it, would, it wouldn't last more than 10 years but it's it's seemingly going to last a bit longer than that so from that perspective we're lucky we're very lucky that we have a population that can that's that's you know quite small in comparison to many other countries and and we're able to provide that for um, you know, for the families in need. It's it's amazing how many families try to move to Australia to get access to those services as well.
2: Well, and what we need is some longitudinal studies that show that early intervention changes the trajectory of health over the course of a life, which I, I believe that's true. Um, there's some studies, not specific to OT, that shows that. Um, and I think, you know, that... You know, and that has to include the health and, and well-being of the family, you know, so then, you know, you're looking at long-term reduction in health costs for, for the caregivers as well as the individual if if those early intervention services are effective. Also the cost to the educational system and, and you know, there's other costs, but um, yeah, so hopefully that will, will sustain itself. We, we certainly need more of that. And, but then i also think that these vulnerable periods i think there's a vulnerable period in early childhood there's a there's vulnerable periods in childhood there's there's a very vulnerable period in adolescence and then you've got this big drop it, it's it's a big cliff between the end of school and those services then and the black hole of adulthood <laughs> which mm. it then what you know, and then where do they go and what services? And there's just such a poverty of options uh, once children leave the educational um, setting, even if they were well-supported there in like what happens now.
1: And, and I think that even that that exists in in the, the primary health sector as well. I was talking to a mum and her young, young man is 18 and transitioning to the adult service and nobody um there 's been no smooth transition into that it 's basically you need to go now find all these people that work now with adults we don't that 's not our field and she 's left saying, but surely there must be somebody who helps with that transition and because we 're now we 're helping with that transition because we think well there 's a gap that 's that's not that 's missing, and it 's not you know it's it's it 's quite um well in some ways, it's quite traumatic for them. They're revisiting back when they were, their child was younger and they were needing to access services and finding the right professionals. And now they're going through that again. And it's, it's, you know, it's quite discouraging to think that we don't even have a system or a service like that in place that, that should be providing that for, those, for families with you know, children with quite significant needs. But it is what it is. Suzanne, question for you. Um, we're going to give you theoretically only Ten million dollars. We say 10, ten million US, probably a bit more. Ten million US because wouldn't ten million Australian wouldn't give you too many US dollars um, to spend, okay? Um, and in a professional way, not a personal way. We get this is professional. Um, what would you do with that amount of money?
2: Oh my goodness! Ten million dollars. That's yep. that, that's a dream. Well, I have dreamed about getting you know somebody landing some millions of dollars. So. I would fund classy. I would definitely fund classy and we would distribute kits, test kits all over the world. We would provide training for therapists all over the world. 10 million doesn't go exactly as far as you think it will. Mm -hmm. Um, But we would, but we would launch a global awareness campaign. We're trying to do that anyway, you know, with the with the funding that we have through Class A, but if we had that those resources, we could actually enact all of this much more quickly and make these resources available to therapists. And then also families, getting scholarships for families. So, so enabling those families to get access to assessment and intervention, but so creating clinics all over the world. We, we would need more than 10 million.
1: Yeah. <laughs> It's just, it's a start really, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's a, you know, I, I think that's the, the key point, isn't it? That, that having money in, in, in the bank or being able to access money provides you an opportunity to increase the rate at which you can make the change or implement the, the, I guess the, the programs or the initiatives that you have. And that's, that's truly what it comes down to, doesn't it? It's, it's the money that provides the resource, doesn't it?
2: Yeah. Well, yes, it does. Uh, we've, you know, we've limped along with no external resources for a very long time. Zoe, Mayu, and I, um, when we were at another big clinic and doing education research projects, and we would have these crazy little fundraisers, like we had Research Barbie, the Mattel donated like 500 wending Barbies. <laughs> we're like, what are we gonna... <laughs> so anyway, we started you know like you've got a little girl you went okay give us twenty dollars and you've got you know but 20 times 500 is you know it's a lot of so so anyway and we we had we had research socks and uh so (laughs) (laughs) research tunnels we got at ikea for a dollar and then you know for a twenty dollar donation so but we again i bought i think 500 of them they were going you know like so we've we've been resourceful in our fundraising effort, uh, but you know, big money like you know national funding for research is very hard. It's very competitive, and they're not looking for the kinds of things we're doing, right? And then if we would go with a more traditional publisher, of course they will in in a for profit model. And and this is not a criticism; they're going to want for profit. Um, so using a nonprofit model, you know we've we've had to be resourceful in in how we're you know getting getting our our, our research socks sold <laughs> our big sales as it were, um, you know to to fund these projects. but we've been we've been able to do okay. Yeah, but if anybody's listening and they have ten million dollars, <laughs> we already know what to do with that.
1: I had a conversation with my wife the other day Michelle about that. I said what would if we had access to or we were we received like millions and like I'm talking hundreds of millions of dollars I think I would in part make it accessible uh, without any cost to all of our current clients. I'd make them continue to have therapy free of charge but put so much into research and and you know building facilities like that's a passion of mine is creating spaces and and building New designs and being, out but you need money. You can't build, you know, the, the types of practices that we build without a, a significant amount of finance. And it just takes years to accumulate that to then re, you know, reinvest that into the practice. And I, I, going back to that point, money just makes it move so much faster, and you could we could get so much more done. And then bring that model and and you know bring it and distribute it overseas and show people how much it works because. You know, we really believe that, particularly the service that we provide for the adolescents and and um, teenagers, is is so um, complementary to the mental health system, and it's, it's just a new way of doing things, and it's it's amazing to see four years down the track some of the results that we're actually. Um, achieving with our young people we just need someone to put some time into the research that's what we're missing
0: well this is the question i'd ask then suzanne you've got an elevator pitch what's your elevator pitch for si and and uh, getting it in that sort of global global sphere you've got a a businessman who's got a hundred million dollars let's say what's your elevator pitch
2: well, right now, I mean, we're in a really good position because we have over 50 years of research. Um, we're being acknowledged by many external organizations as being an evidence-based practice. The incidence of children with sensory integration disorders is going up. I mean, it's not going down in you know, comorb- comorbid with other diagnoses like autism, uh, ADHD, Uh, genetic disorders like Downs, blindness, hearing impairment, learning disabilities, you know, so within all of, and on those with, without other known diagnoses. And, and we think that if we uh, assess and treat that we can ameliorate bigger problems, including social problems down the line. But we need, we do need more funding. We need more awareness. We need people doing the evidence-based practice, so not just sensory whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so just you know uh, things that give a superficial nod to sensory, like oh, we do sensory. We gave a questionnaire, but really it's behavior. I read a report like that yesterday that was irritating. Um, <laughs> so why did you give a sensory questionnaire if you were really thinking that everything's behavior? Where's your behavioral data? There was no behavioral data, so. But no, the sensory questionnaire that you gave is actually showing sensory concerns so so people who who really understand what they're doing um, yeah, and that's what we need and the, and then we need more more um, more opportunities for people all over the world, not just first world but all the all the world mm-hmm.
1: absolutely after all this time do you still watch children play do you do you just watch children for the joy of watching them? do stuff
2: yeah, absolutely yeah mm-hmm. yeah i mean wherever we are right i mean i, I was just with friends of ours that are coming to see the baby yesterday and they go oh man UOTs! like you can't even you can't even sit with a cute little baby <laughs> and just say they're a cute little baby you have to say oh they're regulated <laughs> <laughs> Look uh... at that control look she she's shifting her gaze from right to left <laughs> She's showing showing social regard, um, yeah. And and you see, and you see, like you know, you know, I talked about going to the beach, going to the beach. Mm-hmm. And there was a a boy having a really hard time um, the other day, and I was like, okay, there's some autism there. And mm-hmm. sure enough, I mean, because he was you know doing the stuff in the water and making it splash and watching, you know, and then he flipped out with the sand in the bathing suit mm-hmm. and time to go and transitioning. And it's like so. Yeah, and then I thought, okay, yeah. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to get involved. Moms, <laughs> there's other adults that need to take care of it, you know what to do. And then you see other children that are just, you know, they're not, they're doing all of these other, other things. So, so it's really hard not to uh, be an observer and just the magnificence of typical development and what the children are able to do on their own and with each other and the social dynamics when... When it's all working well, that that needs so much support. When when things are are not working well,
1: it, it you do need to see very typically developing children as well because you need that perspective. Because sometimes you when you see so many children who have you know uh, developmental issues and you just start to think is this is this the norm? Like you know when parents ask, but don't all children not you know, can't climb or can't um, ride a bike at this age or do this. And you say, no, no, typically developing children can do these things at this age. Um, and if your child isn't, there could be a reason why. Um, so it's, it is important to, to spend that time just watching and, you know, enjoying children who can do stuff. And sometimes you think, oh, it's a, a miracle they can do it, but they just do it naturally. And it's enjoyable to watch that happen Um in schools or in, you know, in the playground, it's, I can't do it now. Cause I don't take my kids to the to playground <laughs> anymore. It'd be a bit creepy if I uh, sat there on my own, but, um, <laughs> I do, I find, I find myself just watching, I just watch to see what they're like and, and what they do and, and celebrate their little, like their little wins, especially when they're playing with other children and think that's just a, you know, that's the start, that's the start for them. And, and all children, they need those, they need those wins along the way. Don't they, they, they that propels them with confidence to take on the next thing as well.
2: Yeah, and I and I don't know it probably happens to you as well but because people know what I do for a living um they'll bring their little person and go are they okay are they okay <laughs> <laughs> do, do does my one-year-old have autism yeah. like well you see- no I'm not seeing anything I just know that there's a lot of autism I want to know so you can go down your list like are they you know, are they making eye contact? Or you know, like some of the things, do they anticipate being picked up? I mean, you have your checklist of, mm. of things that you would look at for a normal, you know, a typical one-year-old. Uh, but we, I find that parents are apprehensive. Like, is is this okay? And you know, and it's so nice to say, oh, you know, you got a two-year-old. They're saying no. Yep, you're you're yep. gonna. Yep, yep. There, you got to play the no game for about a year. Mm. <laughs> And no, it, they you they're not going to share. So get over it, you know. <laughs> I,
0: I am there, Suzanne. I know exactly what you what you're talking. No how Panadol, no child? Panadol. Okay, okay, I get it. I'm
2: sorry. It. How old?
0: Um, he's almost two.
2: My son's almost two. Oh now. yeah, yeah, yeah. You're gonna play the no mind game for yeah. for a long.
1: Time. No oh. mine, no mine, no mine, no mine. You know, as, as frustrating as that had was you know that's the period of time i miss the most with my children is that that two you know to six years of age before they started school i always say school ruins children (laughs) (laughs) and that said in a a nice way um but i I often found that two to five they're just so creative and so like in awe of the world around them and and everything's an experience and everything's a new experience and and you can see these connections and their brain growth and it's just Oh, I think it's a lovely time. That's the best time to work with kids as well. I, I find that, you know, when they're between the ages of two and four, the amount of progress and change that they can make in, in the therapy that we offer is amazing. It's, it's. Do you find that as well, Suzanne, that the, you know, the, that younger age group can really progress quite well, even if they have quite significant difficulties?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just amazing. Well, you know, I work with children who are blind for 15 years at blind children, and they were zero to six years, you know, so, so fresh out of the hospital and then up until six years and, and we they just blossomed, just absolutely blossomed, you know, and I know there were varying degrees of, of difficulties, you know, and varying degrees of sightedness or not, but it was so rewarding. It was the most rewarding time in terms of being a treating therapist mm. uh, that I had because the kids just grew and grew and grew. And responded so well to what we had to offer.
0: Isn't that just, again, a justification or a validation for sensory integration then, that you have someone who's got, you know, almost complete loss or deficits in, in one system can utilize all the other systems and even understanding that concept and using that theory to support Child development, and you can see you can see that development occur. If you didn't have that framework, you might go well. If they can't see, then there's lots of other things that they can't do. But
2: yeah, and in, and that clinical reasoning informed me for all the things I do right now. Because you know, is there a loss? Okay, if there's a loss of a sensory system, of course you have to compensate um, mm-hmm. and replace as it were, that information in some way. But but when you do your assessment and you see vulnerability in a in a vestibular system that's not working or a tactile system that's not working, the the same principles apply maybe to a lesser degree, but there there's a compensation. So what information is that person going to use to do those same things? Because you still want the child to you know, find you know who's blind to find things on a playground and to find their way to the bathroom. I mean, open their own containers. So things that we might consider visual motor, um, but they're doing it tactually or auditorily But it's the same thing with people who have a vulnerability in another system. You have compensa- compensation, compensation or, or replacement. Now maybe there's more of a capacity to build those. Um, you know, neuronal pathways to reinforce that if it's not totally broken. Um, but if not, you're, you're still looking at compensation. It's the same clinical reasoning for multisensory processing towards the purpose of information and function. Hmm.
1: Suzanne, um, I would like to ask you a question. If you had to look back on your career and, and think there's one thing that you would change or alter in in that time what would it be or we'll add in or do differently
2: okay um yeah <laughs>
1: that's an easy one
2: <laughs> well it's it, it, it's tricky right because uh i've always loved being an ot but what i have not enjoyed is the Um, the professional infighting so what would I have changed I would have um, I would have maybe gotten out of systems that were not um, that were highly competitive or not supportive sooner Um, so yeah I mean it took a long time for us to create our own thing and really be fully in charge you know so um so so maybe but you know i you know you learn your lessons all the way along so i think none of that is regrettable but just um i i i really honestly these days i don't have any time for anybody who's really um very uh professionally driven to be to be so much better and get awards and all of that stuff yeah yeah we don't have time there's no time for that um so
1: yeah, <laughs> that's a good answer. I th- I think that's what's what really draws well from our perspective. What draws us to the using well being associated with classy is that there's a there's a feeling that there's a there's a purpose behind what you're doing. Like it's not a money driven purpose. It's a it's a it's really at the true essence of providing services and improving the. The, I guess the practice of what we do, and and providing that opportunity for many therapists all over the world, and and that's, and I often think about that when, <laughs> when we are, um, you know, paying for our staff to train, or we're we're putting kits together, or you know, even when it was mentioned how much it would cost to be able to access the platform to have the the easy scored, I said, oh, these guys are very very poor business, very poor business. <laughs> But in in the long run, that will that will be your legacy. And I, I think that's that's really important to take from our perspective is that we really and I wouldn't be alone and Michael wouldn't be alone in saying how much we appreciate that that opportunity to continue to provide, you know, quality assessment and intervention and training for you know, that really helps our families um and you know, drives our business as well. But we we certainly have the same model of reinvesting that money back into the into the business and improving the quality of services and and the, and the facilities we work in so you know you might you might not um, end up buying that island somewhere suzanne but you certainly will have changed the lives of millions of millions of people along the way
2: oh thank you well you know and i i have benefited i mean uh, let's let's be serious I, I support my family from my job in ot and i have I've been able to travel all over the world through the expertise I have in sensory integration. So I, I have personally and you know, profited and benefited from all of this. But, but, but more, you know, but even more importantly, like when you think, you know, because I'm on the, you know, I'm a, a, on the end slope <laughs> of my career. I'm not in the beginning. I'm not in the middle. I'm, you know, which uh, I'm, I'm not quitting yet. But no, no. Um, But, but, you know, Dr. Ayers had such a good idea, like her, her, her concepts are so solid and so relevant. And for me, it would be such a a disaster for this to die with those of us who studied with her Mm -hmm. without, without being able to, um, to continue that legacy well and improve upon it right I mean we're, we're not saying oh take this and and do what she did in the 1960s no I mean it it, it gets better I mean we've got better equipment we've got mm-hmm. we understand it better we've got better neuroscience you know so but um but that that idea the the basic idea and then also the 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 um the rigor of the scholarship is so amazing you know that that for me is is um uh, is really motivating to get the next generations to to give them a solid platform for for which to do better, to do better than she did, to do better than we're doing, to, you know, to keep it going. And then also to make sure that these children are not misunderstood and or lack of, you know, lack of understanding or lack of treatment, like, oh, it's not sensory struggle <laughs> with autism. <laughs> it's just behavior like, what, what does that even mean? So so yeah, so that that's really motivating for us, and I, we're getting there we're we're getting there where we have a platform of assessment the materials that you know we can potentially hand off when you know when we're kind of at the end or at least stand back and then we can just pontificate <laughs> while everyone else actualizes it, it'll, but that,
1: that's be a really well, cool and a well is the earned,
2: sustainability.
1: it'll be a will earned rest, I think. I I would, so what would, what would happen if Dr. Ayers was, you know, say brought, you know, in the current, um, I guess the current day, if she suddenly came up with this theory and these ideas today, do you think she would have an easier time, a harder time, the same amount of difficulty or the same path, what would happen? Do you think?
2: Well, I, I think the same thing, the same thing will happen. First of all, is the, the competition. You know, people like oh, who is this? And you know, I have my ideas, and I want my ideas to be better. And um, and then you know, the second thing is that that's a really good idea, which actually then becomes more of a threat or than a prize. You know, so you know, so so I think I think that those same concerns, I, and I don't think it's just an OT and SI, I think it's sort of in business and yeah. other aspects that, I mean, I think it's maybe human nature. So so I do think that she would have the same, those kind of same concerns, but what would be different is that she would have so much more neuroscience yeah. to ground her work um, because the, the evidence just gets more and more and more robust in terms of her core concepts. I mean, so it's not getting less, it's getting more. And so, you know, I really wish she was here to see that and to use, I mean, I just don't know what her brain would do with all of that. I mean, Mm. way more than mine would. So so yeah, so that I think would be amazing. And the other thing is just for her to see the interest all over the world. Um, You know, she was working in her clinic in Torrance, California. And, you know, she knew that there was, potential all over the world. But I, I don't know if she would have envisioned how big it actually is currently. It's it's really um, so impressive and, and heartening to see the interest um, in so many countries.
0: I think that's a really lovely place to leave all the, um, uh, the SI and the I guess the serious matter. Um, but what we're really here for are some of the more lighthearted questions. <laughs> The less clinical ones? No. Um, food guilty pleasure. Do you have a food guilty pleasure that's like, okay, come home. I just need this. had a tough day and I just go straight for insert food here.
2: Anybody who knows me is going to know the answer and it's going to be cheese.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Dino's not a big fan of cheese. I
1: don't. You, we would be okay. You give me the chips, you can have the cheese.
2: <sighs> okay.
0: Yeah.
1: Fantastic. Um
0: how about some stuff from childhood? So did you have a favorite toy figurine or, or, or even a, a game as a child that you can remember?
2: Hmm, you know, I like being active. I used to pretend I had okay, this is a, a weird thing to remember, but I had this really cool skirt. And so what I would do is I would pick it up in the back. <laughs> I would pretend I was a butterfly. Okay. <laughs> I'm 100% sure my mom was appalled at that. (laughs) (laughs) I was pretty little, but yeah, what did I like to do? I love to ride my bike and go into the woods and climb trees and those things, yeah.
0: Did you um, have a favorite TV show as a child? I mean, it sounds like you were outside a lot and quite active, um, but there may have been occasions where, okay, you've been outside for a while and there was something on TV. Was there a favorite show?
2: Oh well, see now you know how old I am. I mean, I I really loved Lassie. Okay, so oh. yeah,
1: yeah. You're not that old. Lassie, I remember Lassie.
2: Lassie was pretty awesome. Yeah.
0: Lassie was out outside and doing stuff, and and an active an active dog too. So saving the world. And
1: we had the version. We had a version Suzanne in Australia. It was called Skippy. It was a kangaroo. Oh. <laughs> that was like Lassie, like save the world. Yeah. It was. Mm-hmm.
0: There was a lot of stuff going on in these communities as well that ordinary people couldn't solve. So they had the kangaroo to help them. Yeah. So I don't know what that says about Australian law enforcement. <laughs> but Anyway. Um, well, here's one then. Would you rather see the future or go back in time?
2: Oh, the future. Absolutely. Absolutely the future. Going back. I don't even like looking, you know, thinking about, <laughs> oh, what would you do as an OT differently? Like, ah. That's, that's the future is like a much more interesting place to, to, uh, think about. Yeah.
0: It's a really interesting one. When I ask people this, there's never, I'm not sure. Usually it's like, Oh, definitely not the future. Or definitely back in like, it's Mm. always one or the other. I, I I find it's quite a polarizing question, hence why I asked it. So that's good. I, I would assume you'd be a futurist. So certainly, uh, supporting that hypothesis. Um, Well, I've just got a question about um, a comfort blanket. You you mentioned cheese as a a guilty pleasure, but um, what's your comfort blanket? Something you you often go back to when you need something to cheer you up or make you feel warm and fuzzy. could be, you know, favorite book, TV show, anything really.
2: Well, actually, I was just telling my husband, you know, I, I go to the beach, you know, so I stand in the whitewash and that's my happy place. So when I've been sad or perplexed or happy, I go there and that's really what I love. I mean I I could just just be there and it just gives me a better outlook. I'm a better person afterwards. <laughs> so, um yeah, at home I would have to say a good glass of wine mm-hmm. doesn't hurt.
1: <laughs> R- white or
2: red? Oh, you know, I, I I'm a red I'm a red wine fan. I like white on occasion, but I like a good big
1: bread. Got to get back to Australia. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, You guys, you guys do good on red wine,
1: Yeah. <laughs> can I say we probably need to bring that to to a close? But thank you so much for your time and your very generous amount of time. And can I say that talking to you is is quite inspiring and how and just how humble and how easy it is to talk to you and how easy you make it to talk as well because because you can be quite intimidating given, um, well, given your um, your CV and the work that you've done. But I've always known over the, the years that you've always remained, well, from what I know, the same person and very humble and very open and giving of your time. So thank you so much for that.
2: Oh, you're welcome. This was just such a pleasure and, and I'm, I'm really honoured. So thank you. Thank you for all you're doing and thanks for, for doing this with me.
0: Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. Please subscribe to The Integration Station on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to give us a short review if you have 30 seconds. If you have any questions you'd like discussed, Dino and I hope to have a Q&A episode in the future, so please send any questions to the integration station email, podcast at otfc.com.au or via the OTFC website, otfcgroup.com.au forward slash podcasts, and we'll try and answer them on an episode. And as always, shout out to you, Fletch. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.